I want to begin with the question, do you have community? Do you have community? And by community, I mean at one point, like my first, when I was uh, dumped by my first girlfriend, and I had three brothers that I could call up, and they said, Albert, we're coming to you right now. And they literally did. And they took me out, and they showed me a clean, good time. But, um, and, uh, but they, they let me talk. They let me vent. They, they spoke hope into me and, and, and uh, you know, it helped me to see myself for, you know, with worth and so forth. So I had a little circle of community that I could trust and I could lean on and, and even bear my soul to. To, to share. Do you have someone today, someone so trusted that you, if you need to confess something, uh, you have no fear to call this person up, to sit in their presence and to bear your soul before them? And then there's, of course, other levels of community. Do you have a group of friends that you, you can just blow off some steam with? You can, after a long work week, uh, you're comfortable with them and uh, you just can be yourself. All in all, do, do you have community? Do you have relationships? Do you have people in your life where you're not isolated and you, you know that even though you might not be a perfect human being, just having these people in your life and being able to socialize with them, talk with them, and even more deeper still as, as Christians, to pray with them and to look on Christ together and read scripture together and study together. Do you have people that really, literally make you more human? more healthy. Now, we generally define community just as a culture, as a world, and even apart from Christ, apart from religion, uh, we generally define community in, in four ways, and some of us define community by traditions. Uh, in our home right now, there's some tension because uh, I still want the Christmas tree up because the, my wife has done a wonderful job decorating. It's beautiful, especially when the lights are turned on. And I want to um, reculture that to be a winter tree, not just a Christmas tree, because it helps me when I'm down. It literally helps me. I feel, experience a little bit of God's grace through that. But her tradition is, no, this was supposed to go down a month ago. And it's making her go crazy in, in a, you know endearing way. And, and I love her for it. Right? So some of us base our, our commonality on tradition. Some of us, it's all about common sensations, and this can be as extreme as sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It can be rock climbing together. It can be jumping from a plane and parachuting together. It can be enjoying certain food together or going to a, a concert and enjoying um, a quartet together, but something to awaken the senses and, and, and experience something, and usually it, it produces fun. I have a picture up here, uh, apparently heard on the news in Toronto through uh, AGO that a famous Japanese exhibition is coming through, Infinity Mirrors. And, and people are willing, in fact, the news was that people were purchasing tickets and then selling them like quadruple, quintuple the price on Kijiji because it's that popular of an experience. And I, I don't know much about it, but as I Googled it and saw images, that, I don't know if you can make it out, but just even that little picture, you go into this room of mirrors and you feel like you're in the cosmos. And so it's this sensational experience, and people are willing to, to come together for this and even pay uh, exorbitant amounts of money to experience this. Perhaps some of us, how we experience community is common ideas, and perhaps 
Uh, politics is not as polarizing in Canada, but perhaps you, you espouse yourself to one of the leaders that you see up on the screen there, and it's because of their values, their ideas, their outlook on life, their philosophy. And perhaps the way we define community is literally just doing literally life together, living in a commune. And people have sought to experience community by literally doing life together as, as if all of us, if I said today, let's all just live in this building together and, and be one, and, and then you'd realize we're a cult, and then you'd run out the door, and I wouldn't blame you for it. Um, but that's how some people pursue community, and, and this wanting this sort of down-to-earth, soulful connection, we're one, and so forth. Now, we've come here today explicitly because we want to know what God says about life. And, and here specifically today, what does he say about community? What has he in fact even required us? And to give a, a quick synopsis, a quick summary, he created us for community. He himself, our triune God, our beautiful, glorious triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, was the perfect community even before he created the universe. And he had perfect love and relationship within himself. And that overflowed. And he created man for community. But at some point, sin came in and ruined our experience of community. Selfishness went to the core of us. There was war and pestilence and striving that made community that much more difficult. So many more difficult days and stressful days. And then he created for himself his own people, an ethnic people that were also an ethnic spiritual people, the Jews. And at one point, as they were proliferating and multiplying in Egypt, they were slaves, and God, he sends a servant, Moses. And he wants to call out his people. And so here I offer you one verse in Exodus 5, uh, verse 1 we see that what God has actually required of us is to be his redeemed people in sweet communion with him and one another. Now, that's not the actual verse. That's a summary. And so here's the verse. And Moses goes, and he is standing before Pharaoh, and he is delivering God's longing, his command for his people to be his community. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Just one verse, one sentence, but wow, packed with profound pictures of, of what God wants for us as community. First, that we are his people, and God wants to emancipate them, set them free, redeem them from their shackles of slavery, and for what? To hold a feast, to enjoy, to be God's pleasure, to enjoy his presence in the midst of the wilderness, of even when life is dry and difficult and trying. Now the good news of the gospel then, well let's pause there, that requirement is still on us today. That story of Israel, it was a real story of, of salvation, political salvation, and even some spiritual salvation, but also its greatest purpose, even though it's history and it happened, it was also symbolic to point forward to what God ultimately and finally wanted to do, to redeem for himself a final people through Jesus, his church. And so the good news of the cross, of Jesus's uh, message, his gospel, his life, his death and resurrection, and now here specifically the cross, 
is that Jesus, having perfect community in the Trinity, left his triune community. Imagine that, you being asked to leave your sweet communion with whether it's your flesh and blood family or your closest group of friends for someone that doesn't even love you, that that hates you, that thinks poorly of you, would you be willing to exchange your fellowship to reach out and bring that person in? And this is what Jesus does. He leaves this triune community to the point of banishment. He didn't just leave that circle of perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, but he was banished on the cross. He was forsaken, forsaken. Why? Because the gospel is always about a great exchange. As he was even being banished to gather those who would place his faith in him in from the outside. And the good news of the resurrection is this, that God's justice is satisfied by Jesus' banishment. Where you and I fell short and found ourselves exiled by God spiritually in spiritual death forever. Jesus taking our place, it satisfied God's justice. And so God frees Jesus, the crown prince son, from the prison of sin and death. That tomb represented a prison, an eternal prison of sin and death. And uh, God, by the power of the Spirit, frees Jesus, not only from that physical prison, but spiritually, raising him from the dead, resurrecting him, and now he welcomes as sons and daughters all who unite themselves with Jesus by faith. And so we can experience a restoration of what we were created for in the first place and in the, in the deepest place, to be in perfect fellowship, to be in communion with God and with his people. So as we come to today's scripture, um, it shows us, it helps us to be a community by faith. And I want you to notice the small two-letter word there, by faith. I don't just mean a community of faith, because we can look religious and do religious things, but we might not be placing our faith in Christ per se. We're, we're going to do community. You can do community. You just go online today to meetup.com. There are plenty of people, even within a 10K radius of us, right now doing community. But the difference for you and me as Christ followers, and for those of you who aren't Christian today, what the gospel is inviting you to is to experience the truest community that this world can experience, and the one community that will last into eternity by faith in this person, Jesus. And today's scripture helps us with this. If you're the type who appreciates an outline or taking notes, uh, there's an outline in your bulletin there, and you can follow along if that helps to, to follow along. And so first... First exhortation, how do we experience being a community by faith in Jesus? First, gather and scatter by faith. You and I are called to be a church gathered and scattered by faith. And we see this in the first verse. As Luke continues to write and pen this history of the first church, he records, now those who are scattered because of the persecution. Back in uh, chapter 9, I believe, um, Forgive me if I'm mistaken, but Stephen, a godly man, was martyred. And there was a man named Saul 
who was overseeing that persecution and even approved of that martyrdom. And because of that persecution, Christians in Jerusalem fleed and they were scattered. And that word scattered there in the original language is where we get um, that, that idea, that term diaspora. When someone is dispersed, that's where we get the idea. It just it means that they were scattered. And this persecution scattered them to, we see here, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, basically around the Middle East and approaching Europe from Jerusalem because of the persecution. Now, here is uh, an application for you and me, an exhortation. Here we see something that was meant for harm, but God uses it for good. And even the scattering because of the persecution, if it was you and me, we would be discouraged. We would be despondent. We would feel like we would question, why are we following Christ? Is this worth it? But God in his grand wisdom, his big picture ability to see and and to be sovereign over time and history and, and as events are flowing, he knew that this had an exact good purpose for his gospel spreading. And so wherever God, here's the specific application, wherever God has you, whatever station of life, whether it's more a situation or whether it's literally God is sending you to a new city, a new place in the world, or even a business trip, or for work-related things, just leaving the city for a bit and coming back, wherever God takes you, have faith. Place your faith in this God, in this Jesus, that he moves you about on purpose. And the situations that he allows to come into your life, especially difficult ones, that it is on purpose. Be gathered and scattered by faith. To apply that in one more way, we're the church gathered here on Sundays. And this is good. I'm, I, I woke up down today, but just being in the presence of God with the saints and worshiping and, and placing our focus on Jesus already lifted my spirits. And there's a beauty, a goodness, a power to the saints gathering together as the church. But then during the week, we're meant to be scattered out into our little new communities, our workplaces, our families, our homes, our friendships. Second exhortation then. Question your missional heart. Even as God was taking what was meant, looked like harm, was meant to harm the church and uses it for good, it's because he wants his church to continue to be on mission, to continue spreading the love and message of Christ. And that's what we mean by a missional heart. We see this in the next few verses. And so we pick up. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. Now quick side note, and, and just kind of giving away a bit of the script here, as if we were uh, watching a movie, I'm giving you a bit of a spoiler. Remember that there was this man, Saul, that was there. That, was, that catapulted, that catalyzed this, this scattering as well. And so these people that were scattering, were scattered because of this man, Saul. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So here, Luke is being dead honest, and God permits this dead honesty about the slowness of the church to mature and understand the full reach of the gospel. Credit to them, 
that they kept spreading the gospel. But they still had much to learn and mature about who they were willing to give this gift to. And it was still only to their own kind. They believed that becoming a Christ follower, experiencing all the benefits and glories in Christ were only meant for the Jews. Then we see some hope. The Spirit is maturing some men who, and women to break out of uh, the stunted growth in verse 20. But there were some of them. Such an important contrast there. But there were some of them. Men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. Doing what? Preaching the Lord Jesus. That makes me happy. Because really, cause and effect, domino effect, all of us are here today because of these men. As the gospel continues to spread to those outside the Jewish family. And the Spirit was working in them to speak to the Hellenists. The Hellenists, it's debatable who exactly they were, but I'm going to do a both and. Some people think that they were Greek-speaking Jews. Jews who were spread out for whatever reason, immigration, migration, all that at some point. And it would be like a a Korean-Canadian for myself. I'm born here, and if I went to Korea, to my motherland, in fact, I I did get treated like this because my Korean is terrible. But then you right away, they call you kyopo, right? That's a Korean term. They just know you're a foreigner Korean, a Korean expat. And they treat you differently. And and this was a similar thing. Greek Jews, the Hellenists, who were spread out, but even they were considered second-class Jews. Or it could literally mean just Greeks, meaning pure Gentiles. And I think the best way to understand it is both and. But the point is they were reaching out to those that their inner circle would normally have been closed to. So here the exhortation, question your missional heart. As a 2018, 21st century Christ follower, are you willing to go wherever God sends you? Are you willing to reach out and extend your literal hand and compassion, kindness and conversation and socializing with anyone that God sends you to? Or is there someone in your heart that you know, God, if you asked me to, to be Jesus to these people, I honestly would have a hard time because I have many prejudices. Third, what does Scripture exhort us to? How does this passage help us to be a community by faith in Christ? Commit to Jesus and his gospel of grace as our steadfast strategy. Just plodding along. Steadfast strategy for church maturation. For church growth. I long for our church to grow in health, in numbers, in maturity, and and to continue to multiply. In fact, Chris and Kayla are uh, one answer from God for that. We, We hope and long that one day we can send them out to plant another church. And they specifically have a heart right now, what God is working at, what they're discerning is a heart for the urban poor in Toronto. And I hope that we can continue to grow as a church, that we can have resources and the maturity to keep multiplying healthy, gospel-centered congregations. But the strategy is going to be to commit to Jesus and just steadfastly proclaiming his 
unadulterated, untouched gospel of grace. And we see this in verses 20 to 26. As we continue, there were some who went on, and, and, and the good news, we were happy that they reached out to the Hellenist and doing what? Preaching the Lord Jesus. They got it. All they were meant to do was to hold out Jesus. Of course, there's hard work to do it accurately, faithfully, graciously, lovingly, partnered with, with acts of compassion and kindness. But speaking about Jesus as the answer to it all. And we see this beautiful blessing from God. He's happy to bless them. Verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them. That's what I long for the testimony of Trinity Grace Church, and not only our church, but every gospel-believing, preaching church in Toronto, in Canada, in the whole world. I hope our testimony can be, we've seen fruitfulness because the hand of the Lord was with us, because we weren't afraid to just stick to the boring old, I'm being sarcastic and facetious to make a point, the boring old gospel. Of course it's not boring. It, it is, the deeper you get into it, it just continues to explode your mind. But what the world might just put on the shelf and let uh, it collect dust. And Luke continues to write, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. How will we know that the hand of the Lord is with us and, that, and, and at least have clear conscience that we are preaching a true gospel? Because we'll see that one fruit is that they not only believe. Notice Luke makes us two things. It's one thing to believe, to hear the gospel, to uh, intellectually understand it and to, to process it and to even be able to perhaps even explain it. But it's another thing. They believed and then they turned to the Lord. This is a synonym for the word repentance. And remember from last week, repentance is a beautiful thing. It's not what culture, the baggage that culture has placed on it, but a turning, realizing how beautiful Jesus is, how glorious God the Father and the Spirit are in the person Jesus, in this visible image of the invisible God. And as we realize that he is our answer to everything, that we turn to him and in a spirit by loving us, melting us, rewiring and reordering our affections, we begin to grow and mature and find healing. And so steadfastly preaching this gospel of Christ, this needs to be our strategy and to see the church mature. Luke continues the report of this, that this work was going on in Antioch. And by the way, just a quick tangent here, God and his, his wisdom, his sovereignty, his, his strategic wisdom as well, uh, chose Antioch because Antioch was the third largest city, was considered city number three in the Roman Empire. It would be, we're, we're close to that as Toronto in North America. We're the fourth largest and most influential city in North America, only behind uh, Mexico City, uh, New York, and Los Angeles. And so Antioch is somewhat similar to Toronto, a multicultural place, and this became a springboard, a gateway for God's final phase of his gospel going out into the world to all the Gentiles, the, 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 the multicultures, every other ethnicity outside of uh, the Jewish people. 
and they hear this thing going on, and perhaps they're understanding too, this is a very strategic place. If the gospel can get to city number three, this is good for the kingdom. And so they sent Barnabas to Antioch, where he came and saw the grace of God. Again, to unpack the strategy of church growth and maturation. It's the grace of God. He went and saw evidences of the grace in God. And what's neat here, what did it do? It made him glad. And just uh, re-encouraged, again, reaffirmed for our vision statement to be glad. That's supposed to be an effect of the gospel. And in fact, these two words, glad and grace, they, they come from the same root. Where grace is charis in the original language, the word adjective for glad here is just a version of that word grace. And that's what grace is meant to do. As we encounter God's grace, it's meant to make us glad, satisfied, content in his love for us through his son. And he exhorted them. Just as you and I are being exhorted today by God's word, he exhorted them, he encouraged them to to grow. And how? To remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. This needs to be our strategy. To just steadfastly and to be alert like the alarm, and and to remain alert and faithful and steadfast to the Lord. Now, this is so important, especially in 2018. Why? And I want to make a very important disclaimer, and I want you to hear this from me. Um, I'm about to, uh, or an article highlighted a church uh, that is in Toronto, and and they are reaching many people. And so I, I don't mean to, please do not hear me bashing another church, okay? That is not my point. But at the same time, as a church that, any church that puts the name of Jesus Christ or associates themselves with Jesus Christ, we need to question ourselves. We need to evaluate ourselves. What is the message that we are giving, that people are listening to? And so this is just a a capture of the screenshot of the article from a local a Toronto newspaper, and describing this church with slick social media. That's part of their strategy to reach people. And, and that's, I'm not saying that's bad. We live in an age of media. And if this is the, the, the pathway that, uh, where people will connect and, and be exposed to the gospel and be willing to be invited and so forth, praise God. Use it. God, use it to bring more people into church. But here's what, I, what caught my attention. This, I, I reached out to the author of this article, the journalist. He hasn't gotten back to me. And so I don't know what his religious background is. But I asked him, why did you describe the gospel, the message that you heard from them as, and what he described it as, his conclusion, his summary was, a gospel of self-help. That's what he took away from his experience with this church. But you need to understand, that is the antithesis of Jesus' gospel. That is the very antithesis. And so if, again, I don't know what religious background this journalist is, but whatever background, if this is what he's hearing, if this is his summary, then, then something is wrong. And I'm, I want to confess as one, as when I was younger as a pastor, I preached the gospel of self-help. I made that mistake too, so I'm not judging this church But at the same time, we need to be discerning. And in this day and age where people love a gospel of self-help, 
They love being able to help themselves just enough, to feel just enough, just a little bit more better about themselves, to get on with the day. It becomes enough of a drug to make them feel happy about life and themselves and keep moving on without considering the deepest and, and in the most honest ways the, the grand questions of eternity and life and being reckoned before God. So I love this description of Barnabas. This needs to be our description of what it means to be good. For Barnabas was a good man and now synonyms. These phrases are basically defining what it means to be a good man. You're full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Our goodness before God is not defined by, is not dependent on, it's not secured by your sufficient amount of good works. But your goodness comes from the Holy Spirit deeply applying Jesus' goodness to your ungood, your unrighteous heart. And as we experience deeper fellowship, fuller fellowship, walking in step with the Spirit, and daily having the gospel of, applied to our hearts, finding our righteousness in Christ's righteousness, then naturally from the inside out, pure good works that are a fruit that come from the vine of Christ, being abiding in Christ and attached to the vine of Christ and we the branches and the fruit coming out from that, that those will be pleasing good works that rise up to God as an aroma and last into eternity. And so again, we're sitting on this strategy of, of, of how to grow as a church. And so Barnabas went to Tarsus and here I want you to begin a, a see, to see a, a great shock and surprise. Barnabas went to Tarsus as he sees the grace of God and this church is growing in the gospel. And who does he look for? Saul. You have to remember, some of the people that were in this church were people that fleed because of the very man Saul that was ordering the execution of Christians. They were fleeing this man, and who does Barnabas decide to go get? And for what reason? He found Saul, brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year, they met with the church and taught. I love that, met and taught. And that needs to be one way we live out the gospel together in community by faith. We continue to meet and teach one another Jesus and the gospel. But remember, they were met and taught. They were willing to be, to be in face with their potential murderer. Now transformed by the grace of God himself. This gospel of Jesus. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Little Christs. So finally, final exhortation. Love as Jesus loved. already been unpacking where we see this, but Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Saul. Imagine your worst enemy from the history of your life, and they're the one that God chooses to teach you about Christ. How willing 
would you be to sit before that teaching? How could this possibly happen? And for a whole year, if you're the type that holds in bitterness, maybe for a whole year, you, you might just be putting on a fake face, and, but resentment is brewing up inside. But we know that that wasn't the case. How could this possibly happen? And now a, another question of how could this possibly happen, another how could this possibly happen situation. Fast forward to the end. A prophet comes and predicts that there's a famine, and we know that this is recorded in history during the time of Claudius. This is being placed in history, located in real time, in real history events. And notice that it was told there would be a great famine over all the world, over all the world. But this church in Antioch, this Gentile church, that often felt ostracized and second class before the Jewish church in Jerusalem, what do they decide? Verse 29. So the disciples determined in Antioch, everyone according to his ability, meaning there's some sacrifice here, to send relief to whom? To the brothers living in Judea, their pure Jewish brothers in Christ. A church that was often made feel, to feel second class And out of all the places in the world that they could send relief to, who do they choose? The very people that they probably felt most unloved by in the most sensitive ways, the most hurtful ways. Again, how is this possible? Let me try to illustrate with a story, an analogy from my own life. Uh, Grade two, when I was seven was my first experience of summer camp. It was a boys and girls camp, and uh, um, I was sent off. I'm naturally an introvert, so just even breaking in socially. To a, and, and it was a brand new church. It was, I'd only come to that church uh, not too long ago, maybe a month before, and my parents just cart me off, just sent me off right away to a summer camp. I haven't really made friends yet. And I'm doing my best, as much as a seven-year-old can intuit social skills and so forth, and trying to get along. And in the schedule was swimming at the beach, but we had to run down a steep gravel hill. It kind of looked like this on the screen. It's not this exact one. Uh, And for some reason, just to play along into the narrative of the new kid, kind of socially awkward and so forth, I was the last kid as well. And so getting my swimming trunks on, my towel, and in my heart, I'm thinking, wait up, wait up. And of course, I didn't yell it out because I didn't want to seem uncool. So I'm running as hard as I can. All the other kids are ahead, probably about 30 yards, and I trip really bad and fall, and both my knees were just ripped apart and, and bleeding, and, and I was crying. But first, I don't know if I was, how loud I was crying. There was one older boy, probably... Uh, not probably, I know exactly. He, he's four years older than me. His name is Suyong. And he goes down in my mind as, next to Jesus, one of the greatest heroes in my life. <laughs> and he, he noticed. He turned around. And he ran to me. And he helped me. He cleaned me up. And he actually took me under his wing for the whole camp. He became one of my closest friends at that church. And we maintained a friendship. We, we still maintain a friendship to this day. That's a picture of how it's possible for us to reach out to those who might once even hate.
hated us, for those who would treat us second class. Because there was someone else, like Seung, he, he ran up the hill. He ran uphill. This, this Jesus, you know I'm getting at Jesus. This is just an analogy. But Jesus, up a much more painful, difficult hill, he runs up and he loves us. And as was read earlier, we're now meant to love others as he has loved us. That's the only way this is possible. And so to wrap it up and to end where we began, what has God the Father required of us? To be his redeemed people in sweet communion with him and one another. To be called out. But it's because of this Jesus who has loved us in the way that he has that we can love one another this way and be a community by faith. And so let me end with Spurgeon's words. Describes us even more beautifully than I could ever. Christ was also chosen out of the people that he might know our wants and sympathize with us. He was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. In all our sorrows, we have his sympathy, temptation, pain, disappointment, weakness, weariness, poverty. He knows them all, for he has felt all. Remember this, Christian, and let it comfort you. However difficult and painful your road, it is marked by the footsteps of your Savior. And even when you reach the darkest valley of the shadow of death and the deep waters of the swelling Jordan, thou will find his footprints there. In all places, wherever you go, he has been our forerunner. Each burden we have to carry has once been laid on the shoulders of Emmanuel. His way was much rougher and darker than yours. Did Christ my Lord suffer and shall I repine? Take courage. Royal feet have left a blood red track upon the road and consecrated the thorny path forever. Amen.